As I have um, been working on this sermon throughout this week, um, and this passage specifically here in John chapter 11, um, I've had a song that's kept kind of reverberating in my mind. You know how sometimes you can get that one tune in your head and you just can't get it out? I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that happens to well, this week, the song um, that I've had in my head is uh, it's called In the Light. It's by Charlie Peacock. It was covered by DC Talk, but don't pay any attention to that. The original is by Charlie Peacock. He's a, a Christian um, singer, producer. I recently was listening to an interview. I was mowing the yard out here and um, listening to an interview with him where he was explaining that this particular song, which was released in 1991 when I was still in high school, um, it's about his conversion, and it's also his continual prayer. I keep trying to find a life on my own apart from you. I am the king of excuses. I've got one for every selfish thing I do. What's going on inside of me? I despise my own behavior. This only serves to confirm my suspicions that I'm still a man in need of a Savior. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. I want to shine like the stars in the heavens. Oh, Lord, be my light and be my salvation. All I want is to be in the light. All I want is to be in the light. The disease of the self runs through my blood. It's a cancer fatal to my soul. Every attempt on my behalf has failed to bring this sickness under control. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. I want to shine like the stars in the heavens. Oh Lord, be my light and be my salvation. All I want is to be in the light. All I want is to be in the light. I want to be in the light as you are in the light. Bring me into the presence of the Father. I will follow right behind. True love I will find. All I want is to be in the light. All I want is to be in the light. This morning's passage, as we resume our look here, as we pick it up in John chapter 11, this is another clue as to, to what it means to be in the light, what it means to walk in the light. And the disciples, it seems at least, um, maybe even by the end of this, they seem to begin to understand the implications of following Christ, even to death. And so this morning, we're going to look at John chapter 11, verses 11 through 16. We're actually only going to get to the first couple of verses. We'll pick it up again next week. But I want to go ahead and read John 11, 1 through 16, because these kind of first 16 verses of this chapter serve as, as an introduction to the miracle that he's about to perform. And it provides for us some, some important details about Jesus' private conversation, his private discussion that he has with his disciples. You can imagine um, that since these are real events um, that really happened in a real space and in real time, that the disciples had questions for Jesus after each of the signs, after each of the, the miracles, the signs and wonders that he had performed. One of the questions they might have is, how did you do that? But it's only occasionally in the Gospels that these Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John, it's only occasionally that they give us these kinds of conversations. 
And so here in this introduction to the, what, what is known as the seventh sign in John's gospel, we see one of those conversations as Jesus explains what he's doing or what he's about to do and why he's doing that. So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to, uh, to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to waken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's just stop and pray again. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning, that we would hear uh, from you and understand. Give us ears to hear, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, as time marches on, A couple of things, if you look at the life of Christ and his teaching and read through the gospel accounts, a couple of things become more and more clear. One of those is that Jesus came to be the propitiation for his people. That means that he came to to die for their sins and also to take them away. John himself will write in his first letter in, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, he says this, Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And as we saw last week um, from the opening of this chapter, this kind of love for his people was one one of his motivating factors, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John will also write in his first letter in chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And again, as I read just a minute ago, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
It's a part of his character. The Apostle Peter will put it like this. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And here, John puts a lot of stress on the fact, here in this passage in John 11, he puts a lot of stress on the fact that Jesus loved this family. Not just in general, but very specifically. Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Mary. And it was his love for the saints, again, which, which flowed out of his character, which was uh, flowed out of who he is. It was his love for the saints that, that was complemented by his, by his desire to glorify his Father, that the Son of God may be glorified as well. See, we shouldn't see these opening verses of this miracle as as he loved them, but he desired more so to glorify God. Instead, these two aspects of Jesus' character, of, of God's character really, his, his love, of Jesus' love and of Jesus' obedience to the Father, they're not set in opposition to each other. So look back at verses 5 and 6. He says, John tells us, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus loved them, so he waited for Lazarus to die. Some of the older, um, at least the NIV, the New International Version translation of the Scripture, those published before 2011, they made some revisions after that. But it actually says in some of those, and that's a very popular version you may have it, it says that Jesus loved them, yet when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he waited for two more days. That's what we want it to say. He loved them, yet for some reason, some strange reason, he waited. But that's not what it says. It says that he loved him, that, that, that he loved Lazarus, so he waited. Because Jesus was going to do far more than, than Mary and Martha could ever ask or imagine. Because this illness, as he said in verse 4, will not lead to death. This illness will end in resurrection. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. Well, another truth that becomes more and more clear as these events unfold is that not only did Jesus come to be the, the propitiation for our sins, but also as God, the timing is in his hands. Back in John chapter 7, we read that the Jews were, were seeking to kill him. That's how chapter 7 opens. And then if you remember back then, his brothers returned to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, and he tells them to go ahead, but that his time has not yet come, he says. Of course, he's talking about his time to die, his time to go to the cross. By chapter 12, verse 23, the next chapter from where we are, he's going to make this statement. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. And as this story here, as John chapter 11 unfolds, we understand that this is not about Lazarus, as if Lazarus were the central character. This is about Jesus. This is about Jesus' resurrection. And, 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 and Lazarus' resurrection points directly at Jesus' empty tomb. And this will happen 
according to Jesus' time, according to God's time. And I should point out there, when I, when I say that it will happen according to His time, Jesus or God, I'm really referring to what theologians call um, the covenant of redemption. That agreement between God the Father and God the Son before the beginning of time, which God will, in which God has decided that He will redeem for Himself a people for His own possession. And so as the details of this chapter play out, it's clear that most of this story is about Jesus and his relationship with this family. First, Martha. Then it's about his relationship with Mary. You see two conversations there. But here today, in in these opening verses here, John makes a point to remind us that the twelve, the disciples, they're with him as this all comes about. And their reaction shows us that, that sometimes, or, or maybe often, there's danger and even confusion in following Jesus. Look at just verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? There is danger and confusion in following Jesus. Now, by confusion, I, I don't just simply mean that, that they don't understand his methods. Actually, that is what I mean. They don't understand his methods. He's not intentionally being confusing. They just don't understand. God had said in Isaiah chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's, and there in Isaiah 55, he's talking about salvation. And these verses are a good example of this. They don't, it's confusing to follow Jesus because we don't see the big picture as he does and as he's laying it out. Now, now as we kind of unpack this, remember those two truths that are becoming clearer and clearer. Jesus came to to be the propitiation for his people to die and take away their sin. And the timing is in his hands. It's in God's hands, his and the Father's. And so the first thing that we should see here in verse 7, as you look at this, is actually a, a double note about the passage of time. This is a very kind of intricate detail. But verse 7 begins with the words, then, after this. Then, after this, that is, after the two days from verse 6 have passed. And I'm pointing that out because there are are two distinct Greek words there. Then, and then after this. Here's why. John is putting a delay, putting an emphasis on the delay. He's putting an emphasis on that passage of time. Then, after this. There was a pause here. This is important in the usual sense. Jesus is doing his work according to the time frame established in eternity past. Jesus is not going to be rushed. He can't be rushed. Even by his most eager disciples, like Mary and Martha, who who are praying earnestly, Lord, he whom you love is ill. They had a short view of what an answer to their prayer looked like. Remember that prayer? It was just so simple. They just sent him a message. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Remember the answer? 
when they finally saw him, they said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They had a short view of the answer to their prayer. Jesus can't be rushed, even in our most earnest prayers, even when we are most desperate. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray desperate prayers. No, on the contrary, it means that we should pray. It means that we should submit to His will. We should pray according to God's will. He taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in submission to God's will. We pray trusting that God actually does work all things together for good for those who love God, who are loved by Him and called according to His purpose. Jesus is doing his work according to the time frame established in eternity past. And so when he burst on the scene in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When he bursts on the scene doing this, the fullness of time had come. God had sent forth his Son born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so Jesus is motivated not with emotion. You can imagine that their message to him in those, what is it, verse 2, their message, verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You can imagine that there was a lot of emotion He calls Lazarus, when he's speaking to the disciples, he calls him our friend. They both confront him, both the sisters confront him. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is an emotion-filled chapter. And yet he is not motivated by his emotion. He displayed emotion, even right here as he weeps, but he didn't lead with his emotions. He knew, uh, he knew that his, his purpose, his motivation was to glorify the Father, that the Father might glorify the Son. That great hymn in Philippians chapter 2 puts it like this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus always lived to glorify, lives, present tense, Jesus always lives to glorify God. One commentary put it this way, that the glory of God is his driving motivation and the sovereignty of God is his driving force. And because his hour was closing in, he turns to his disciples and says, Let's go to Judea again. Let's go to Judea again when the time was right. This is the danger of following Christ. Not only does he call us to consider the cost, as Chris preached about a couple of weeks ago, even to the point of forsaking all, all to follow him, sometimes there's real danger. Sometimes not only are we giving up things, relationships, but there's real danger. Sometimes he leads us into the presence of our enemies. Remember David's famous prayer in Psalm 23? 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Verse 5 says this, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Sometimes he leads us into the presence of our enemies and says, sit down and eat. Trust me. This is exactly where Jesus is leading his disciples. Not many days after this, after chapter 11 and 12, um, they will find themselves in an upper room, reclining at table, eating a Passover meal. And he will say to them, as Matthew narrates for us, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. David had said, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In their case, in the case of the disciples, the presence of their enemies was in Judea, where the Jews were, as the disciples say, just now seeking to stone him. There's an active threat against his life. Now, Judea is that region. It's like a, uh, think of Logan County or Champaign County. It's a region around Jerusalem. And Bethany is just a small village in Judea. Uh, We remember back in chapter 7, verse 1, John has said to us, after this he went about in Galilee, which is considerably north. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then as recently as the previous chapter, chapter 10, he did go back to Jerusalem, and they tried to arrest him. Jesus was a a wanted man around the Judean countryside. And just by association, the disciples would have been in danger as well. But notice here in these verses that Jesus didn't say, hey, let's sneak into Bethany and visit Lazarus. He's really sick. Let's just quietly go in and visit and then get out of here. He knew the danger. He knew the animosity. He understood the hatred that the Jewish leadership of of this region looked at him with. And his disciples, they know all of this. And they're concerned for him and for themselves. They begin to object to his plan. Remember what his plan was. As far as they know, he had said to, uh, in their presence at least, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, glory to them meant king, kingdom. If we go back there, they're going to kill us, and you'll never be king. He's going to be okay anyway. You said that. Surely he has recovered. It's been a couple of days. But they object to this plan going back there. And there's nothing earth-shattering in their, re- uh, in their objection to this. Um, I think it's very understandable. I don't think that their desire to not be harmed was sinful. Um, This would be most of us. We we don't want to go back there. Uh, There's an arrest warrant out for you and for us because of our association with you. We don't want to go back there. Um, If you look at persecution, the persecution of Christians in the book of Acts, You will find as you study through that book that sometimes they fled danger and sometimes they stayed. 
In fact, Paul himself in Acts chapter 9, there was attempts to kill him and some friends let him down in a basket, let him down the wall of Damascus so that he could escape. But another time, when an earthquake shook the jail and his chains fell off, he stayed. Hey, we're right here. We haven't left. And he faced prosecution. So I don't think their objection here to going back to Judea was particularly sinful on those grounds, but I do think it was short-sighted. Here's why. If you notice in verse 8, they call him rabbi again. This is the final time in John's gospel that the, that the disciples will call Jesus rabbi. You remember last week I said that at the beginning of this chapter, uh, John and the sisters in their prayer, and John is narrating this, they refer to Jesus as the Lord. And when they did so, it, that was a, a title of reverence and honor and worship and, and respect and, and trust. Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then they respond later with, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Rabbi, are we going there again? They were so short-sighted. John's gospel doesn't want us to merely believe in a rabbi. He doesn't want us to merely believe in a a good teacher. That's what the world wants. Um, If we're going to go ahead and read the Bible and follow the teachings of Jesus... And the world will say, at best, you can consider him a good teacher. Maybe even a good rabbi. But when we start calling him Lord, the world is going to have a problem. When you start calling him Christ the Lord, the Son of God, the world is going to hate you because it first hated him. That's a promise. A couple of weeks ago, um, Chris quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of my favorite sentences of Bonhoeffer's is this. It's part of a longer quote, but just this one sentence. It's one of my favorites. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the paradox of verse 8. They're objecting to him putting himself in danger, putting his life on the line. And Jesus continues to teach them that this is the reason that he came into the world, to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, he's telling them, really he's telling us, that it's only in the death of Christ that his people will live. Not just Lazarus, but even us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 says it like this. It's speaking to the Thessalonian Christians. So speaking to Christians specifically, Paul writes this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And so just as the death of his friend Lazarus will give Jesus the opportunity to show Mary and and Martha that he genuinely loves them, even through their heartbreak, he genuinely loves and cares about them, how much more will his own death give him the opportunity to prove 
his love, not just to one family, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To prove his love. And Jesus' call to follow him, while that call is dangerous, while that call is frequently confusing to us, as verse 8 shows, that is a call that requires faith and trust. Requires faith and trust. You can see it in the disciples' answer. I'm going to stop a little bit early today. Um, There's a lot more in this passage, and we will dig into it a little bit more next week, Lord willing. But I want, to, I want to say this. I know that, I should say, I know what many of you have given up in order to follow Christ. It's not theoretical to us. I know what um, many of you have given up in order to be faithful to His commands. I know what many of you have given up in in some cases, even just to be a part of this church, required faith and trust. Faith in Jesus Christ and trust in Him that when He says, hey, let's go back to Judea, where they want to kill me, we can say, okay, let's go and die with Him. And so by way of encouragement, by way of example, um, application, I guess, I want to read you just a very short biography. Um, It's written by a church historian, Stephen Nichols. It's about the life of Elizabeth Elliot. You've probably heard of Elizabeth Elliot. She was born in 1926 in Brussels, Belgium. She died in 2015 in Magnolia, Mississippi. She was the daughter of missionaries. She was the wife of a missionary husband, and she herself was a missionary. She was an author, and she was a speaker. As a young lady, her maiden name was Howard, Elizabeth Howard. She went off to Wheaton College where she studied the classics. She studied classics, she said, because she believed it would best prepare her for her life's calling to be a missionary and translator of the New Testament. And while at Wheaton, she met a man named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott thought God wanted him to be a bachelor. Five years later, he changed his mind. I don't know if he changed his mind or God changed his mind, but either way. Initially, he and Elizabeth went to Ecuador individually. She went as Elizabeth Howard. He went as Jim Elliott. Shortly thereafter, they arrived in 1953, and they were married in Quito, Ecuador. One day, not too far from the site where they were working in Ecuador, a missionary pilot named Nate Saint, he noticed a settlement on one of his flights. After a few months of airdropping packages and sending messages... They decided they would go and visit that village in person. Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, and the pilot, Nate Saint, all went to visit along the river there in the Amazon jungle. Back at the missionary station, they had no word. Nothing. It was silent. People began to wonder about them, and so they started to search. After a long... um, time, and by this point becoming national and even international news, after a long period of time their bodies were finally discovered and it was realized that all five of them 
Those men had been killed, speared to death in the Amazon jungle. Life magazine ran a 10-page article to chronicle the sacrifice of the missionaries. Many people wondered and scratched their head at the seemingly senseless sacrifice of these young men so far away from home in the Amazon jungle. The next year, Elizabeth Elliot wrote wrote one of her best-selling books. I'm sure some of you have read it, Through the Gates of Splendor. And in that book, she quotes a line from one of her husband's journals. Simply says this. This is what Jim Elliot wrote in one of his journals. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. So she, in speaking of the sacrifice of her husband, presented the idea that it wasn't senseless whatsoever. The world, Life magazine, might say this is a senseless waste, but she understood. In 1958, uh, Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint, who was the sister of the pilot that died, Nate Saint, they made contact with that very tribe that had killed her husband and Rachel's brother. Shortly after that, she went and served among them for two years as a missionary. She brought her young daughter Valerie with her. Valerie was 10 months old when her father had died. In 1963, Elizabeth and her daughter Valerie returned to the United States and Elizabeth Elliot would go on to be an author and a speaker and over, over the next five decades would emerge really as a leader in evangelicalism, a, a, a very influential voice through her books and her speaking. But it was largely through the sacrifice of her husband and her desire to return to those same people who took his life. She's known and she has a place in church history. The life of Elizabeth Elliot wanted to read you this one quote by her. She said this, Faith does not eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take them. Faith does not eliminate questions, but faith knows where to take them. Jesus' call to follow him is a call that requires faith and trust. And it's a call to live in the light as he is the light. We're getting more of the light next week when we get into verses 9 and 10. Charlie Peacock wrote another song. I'm going to quote just a part of it, just because. I've tasted the cup of mercy, mercy sweet. I've tasted the cup of grace, grace so sweet. And after all my days are done, perfect love I'll see when I stand with you, Lord, in glory. When I stand with you, Lord, I will not be alone. Together with the multitude, I'll stand before your throne. When I stand with you, Lord, perfect I will be. When I stand with you, Lord, in glory. Let's pray together. Father, following you, following Jesus Christ requires faith and trust. So that when you say, let's go to Judea again, We can just go, knowing that one day when we stand in glory, perfect we will be because of Jesus Christ. When we will stand in the light, seeing the light, 
Father, I thank you for all that you have done. Conform us, mold us into your image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.